0: is a raw vegan and fruit diet more healing for inflammation than cooked food in theory i think raw foods make a lot of sense
1: because you would have to believe that our species did not evolve along with sterno so we were eating a lot of raw things and what you discover is sometimes people don't react very well to certain foods that were not part of our diet since time immemorial
0: And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And it is time to raise our nutrition IQs once again, because this is number four in our series of diet myths. And this week on the show, Dr. Neil Barnard is back to explore some of the most widely held beliefs when it comes to nutrition. And as a bonus, we're not doing just one segment of the doctor's mailbag. Oh, no, no, my friend. We are doubling down and we are bringing on Dr. Venita Ramon to join us. And she is going to be joined by dietitian Lee Crosby, the fiber queen. We are going to get to so many of your questions on the show today. Your head might explode. I don't know, but it's going to be fantastic. We are going to do our best to get as much nutrition knowledge crammed into your cranium as humanly possible, and we are going to be exploring some of the best questions yet on the exam room. Questions like one from Lana who wanted to know, is a raw vegan diet better than a cooked vegan diet when it comes to inflammation? Does one trump the other? And then what about cruciferous vegetables? should they really be cooked or are they okay to be eaten raw? Dr. Barnard's going to be weighing in on that. Plus, somebody wrote in wanting to know, does Dr. Barnard suggest any other supplements other than vitamin B12? So Dr. Barnard will be prescribing an answer for that momentarily. Also had someone write in wanting to know, is it true that there is a connection between dry skin and food? That's important information as we head into these cold weather months where the air is so dry it can just suck that moisture right out of your skin. So we'll be finding out an answer to that as well. And then speaking of cold weather months, what happens when the temperature changes? Your sinuses, they can go a little bit haywire. Someone else, great question, wanted to know what foods contribute to full sinuses. They were asking a question about cutting down mucus as we head into the fall and winter. So what should we be avoiding there? We're going to get ourselves an answer. Plus, Dr. Vanita Rahman and Dietitian Lee Crosby will be on the way momentarily in just a little bit. But before we get to any of that, let's check out the exam room news desk. I had an interesting study crossed recently that I wanted to share with you. And this one actually has to do with high blood pressure. And what is a great way to lower high blood pressure? Well, through diet, of course. But specifically here, we're gonna focus on one nutrient in particular called a Flavanol. So it turns out that if you want to lower your blood pressure, then eating high amounts of Flavanols actually may help. In a study of more than 25,000 people, UK researchers found that those who consumed the most foods and drinks that were loaded with Flavanols had significantly lower blood pressure. In fact, the study found that the reduction from the flavanols was on par with the popular Mediterranean and DASH diets that have been recommended for hypertensive patients for years. Green tea, by the way, is loaded with flavanols. So when it's a little bit cold outside, why not get yourself a nice hot cup of green tea and load up and lower that blood pressure. All right, let's now load up our nutrition knowledge. Let's load up our nutrition IQs. And let's do that right now with Dr. Neil Barnard. The mailbag is full, Dr. Barnard. Let's go ahead and start to empty this thing out. Our first question comes to us from Nima. She's tuning in all the way from over in Iran. She's been reading your book. Uh, She wants to know in Chapter 12 of Your Body and Balance, it says, quote, raw is fine for lettuce and cucumbers, but not for cruciferous vegetables, which should be well cooked. Why is that? I don't like any of them when they're cooked.
1: Okay, I'm with you. Uh, First of all, thank you for um, for listening and delighted to be speaking to our friends in Iran as well as everywhere else around the world. Um, Thank you so much for your interest in what we're talking about. Okay, broccoli, cauliflower, uh, the other cruciferous vegetables, you'll see them on the crudite tray, and you take a a bite out of it. And uh, if you cook them, um, other people will probably be askance uh, if they um, start turning into various shades of green and are soft like pudding. But you also will discover uh, really maybe two issues. One is that uncooked cruciferous vegetables often cause a lot more digestive upset than the raw versions. And if you are having digestive problems on your um, healthy plant-based diet, you might want to cook your beans a little bit more and cook your cruciferous vegetables a little more. The other thing about it is that plants in their natural state have certain compounds that they make to repel insects um, or other invaders that want to attack their roots or their leaves and cooking destroys those. So um, uh, broccoli in particular, has um, some compounds that can be destroyed with cooking. Um, it doesn't mean that it's uh, really toxic to eat it uh, raw, but uh, a number of, of uh, botanists have suggested that it is a safer thing to eat cooked. So there you have it.
0: All right. Here's a great question from Vegan Grandma. That's a great name too. She writes, since being on a whole food plant-based diet and losing 40 pounds, my skin has been dry no matter how much water I drink. I started taking a vegan biotin supplement to help my skin. Is that safe? And are there any other ways that you can mention that would combat dry skin?
1: Uh, Good on you for having lost 40 pounds. Congratulations. You're an inspiration to everyone around you. Um, If you have dry skin and you Google Um, vitamins for dry skin. Biotin will be one of the first ones to come up because it's a B vitamin and you do need it uh, for health. Um, Does it really work? The evidence is not super strong that it does. Um, You can't can't take a supplement. There isn't any evidence that I have seen of dangers uh, from it. The amount you need is about 30 micrograms a day. And if you exceed that, because it's water-soluble, chances are you'll just excrete it. Um, but it, but it, it exists naturally in nuts and in seeds and traces in avocados and sweet potatoes. And that's why you don't hear people going out and getting a biotin supplement, because it's pretty uh, common in these kinds of foods.
0: All right. Speaking of supplements, Christina writes, she wants to know, what are your top daily supplements uh, besides B12? Are there any others that you advise to take as well? Thank
1: you for asking that question. So important. All right. Um, Let's kind of go through these rules. I want to back up for anybody who is new to this word vegan. And, and, you know, I want to lose weight and get my cholesterol down and tackle my diabetes. I hear a vegan diet is great. And it is. Um, And the rules are four groups. Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and legumes or beans. Okay, so But we do need to supplement vitamin B12. You need it for healthy nerves and healthy blood. And the amount that you need is 2.4 micrograms for adults. Um, there are no bottles that small. They're all, you'll see bottles of 100 or 200 or 500 or 1000 micrograms a day. Um, and just get the smallest bottle you can find. Um, but what, your question is a good one. What else should I take? Normally vitamin D comes from the sun on your skin. The sun, the UV rays hitting your skin create vitamin D. But if you use a sunscreen, or you're indoors all the time, or if you live in North Dakota, where I grew up in December, you are not soaking up a lot of UV rays from the sun. Um, So that's when a vitamin D supplement makes sense. Um, The government would say have about 800 international units a day, I would push a little bit higher um, to around 2000 international units per day and your doctor can test you and see if your levels are, are, are normal. Um, So, uh, all right, B12, D, let me add one more. Iodine is a mineral and it is very abundant in sea sea vegetables. So wakame and nori and all these have lots of it. But if you grew up in Omaha, you probably aren't eating seaweed very much and you might get a little low in iodine and your thyroid gland can't get the iodine it needs to make thyroid hormone. Um, Now, iodized salt comes to your rescue. But if you are a modern person using Himalayan salt or sea salt or kosher salt, you, it's, it's not iodized unless it specifically says it is on the label. So if you are never getting sea vegetables and you are never um, using iodized salt, then you might want to consider iodine as your third supplement. And the amount you need is 150 micrograms a day. And frankly, that's about it. There are a million other supplements, but I treat them more like medicines for specific conditions rather than supplements for daily use.
0: All right. Here we are headed into the cold weather season. We're talking about dry air and now we're going back to dry skin. Judy wants to know how much water should I be drinking? Perhaps she too is concerned about dry skin. Yeah.
1: um, If you asked um, some authorities, some nutrition authorities, they'll say have eight eight-ounce glasses of water per day. That means 64 ounces of water. If you do that, you will never get out of the bathroom. Um, and the fine print after that um, guidance to have eight glasses of water per day says, or the equivalent in foods, meaning you made your morning oatmeal with what? Water. Uh, you're having soup with what? Water. Water. Um, you're having an apple, which has lots of water inside. So the truth is you don't actually need to drink a glass of water ever in theory if you are getting lots of water in the foods that you are um, consuming. So I recommend that you not count. Don't count glasses. Don't count ounces. But when you go to the bathroom, if your urine is, is very dark in color, you're dehydrated. Um, If it's not, if it's clear or just very lightly straw colored, you're probably very well hydrated. If you if you still have dry skin, though, um, you might want to consider not trying to treat it internally, but externally with various creams. And and this is even a place where you can use something like coconut oil, which I do not recommend you ingest, but you can use it externally if you want. And there are lots of other products.
0: All right. Here's an interesting question, one that's come up a little bit recently in the shows, the, the old uh, raw versus cooked debate. This one comes to us from Lana. She wants to know, is a raw vegan and fruit diet of about 80 to 90% raw more healing for inflammation than a diet that is all cooked food? Okay, neat. What a
1: sophisticated audience we have. Um, <laughs> uh, in theory, I think raw foods make a lot of sense because you would have to believe that our Species did not evolve along with sterno. So we were eating a lot of raw things for since time immemorial. Our problem now is it's not really entirely clear which are the best raw foods for us. Uh, What I mean by that is human beings began in presumably in Eastern Africa. And from there, we got restless and started migrating all over the, the planet. And when people ended up in North America, they had for the first time, tomatoes, uh, potatoes, corn, peanuts, foods that were not part of our natural African diet. Um, And what you discover is sometimes people don't react very well to certain foods that were not part of our diet since time immemorial, which is by way of saying I'm never quite sure which are the raw foods that are best for us. But your gut will tell you, Uh, meaning if you're eating something that's not so good for you, you often get digestive uh, symptoms and you can get inflammation. Which brings me back to your question: um, in an anti-inflammatory diet, part of the issue is what you include, but the real issue is what you kick out. Kick out dairy products. Um, we see probably more inflammatory responses to dairy. I'm talking about people who have migraine triggers or rheumatoid arthritis triggers and others. Uh, kick out dairy, kick out meat and eggs, and then beyond that, there are certain other foods that um, are healthy in theory, like wheat, um, uh, citrus fruits, but that some people react to more than others. And you can see if avoiding them helps you. So that's a partial answer.
0: All right. And here's the next one comes to us from Mel wants to know, While pregnant, what are the best sources for calcium? How much should I be getting every day? And is it best to eat that with other foods to aid with absorption? Another sophisticated question.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you. Um, it is good to, to have your calcium with other foods. Um, researchers at Harvard years ago started looking at adverse effects of calcium. If you overload on calcium, you can get kidney stones. Um, in not, not super commonly, but it does happen. And what they found is that when the supplements are taken with food, it tends not to occur. The stones tend not to occur as much as when they're taken just by themselves. Um, how much do you need? The government would say... If you you are not pregnant, have 1,000 milligrams a day. If you are pregnant, you should have 1,200. My own read of the literature suggests that both of those numbers are overly generous. Um, And the reason I say that is it's just been really hard to show any substantial benefit from calcium supplementation over very roughly about 600 milligrams per day. And your sources, of course, should be green leafy vegetables. That's kind of number one. That's, that's where the cow gets the calcium from. Cows eat grass. You'll hopefully have kale or collards or Brussels sprouts or broccoli or something like that. But green leafy vegetables come top. And then there's also calcium in the bean group and lots of other foods.
0: All right, we heard uh, vegan grandma. She's having some weight loss success. Apparently, Jolena is becoming inspired. She wants to know, Dr. Barnard, can obese people lose weight eating a vegan plant based diet? And if so, how much and how fast? That, that is always the question. How quickly can I get this off?
1: Okay. Um, just so I understood the question, Chuck. So the, the question is Will a vegan diet lead to weight loss? And if so, how quickly? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, we have studied this in lots and lots of people. And you never know the answer until you just try it. Um, There are a few um, rules of thumb. The more weight you have to lose, the faster it comes off. So in other words, if you have really accumulated quite a lot of weight, you often will see weight loss very rapidly when a person follows this diet. Secondly, uh, this is not fair, but my... um, kind of back of the envelope calculations suggest that men lose weight a little bit faster than women do. Um, I suspect that is because belly fat comes off quicker than thigh fat. Um, and uh, that, that, that tip, it's just a general observation. But you, the rules remain the same. But the biggest issue here that I find when a person is going vegan and they're trying to lose weight, if you're not losing weight very rapidly, write down everything you eat. For about two days and look for fatty foods nuts nut butters like peanut butter or almond butter uh, oils um, guacamole uh, every gram of fat has nine calories packed into it and carbohydrates have only four so the fatty foods are going to slow down your weight loss how quickly on average in our research studies you see oh maybe anywhere between a half a pound and a pound Per week with a person who is not exercising, not restricting their portions at all, and just going to a low-fat vegan diet. If that sounds uh, slow, um, keep in mind there are 52 weeks a year. And if you're losing 52 pounds or even 26 pounds, that would be a half pound a week. You're losing weight a lot faster than you gained it. So so that slow, gentle weight loss is perfectly fine. You can accelerate it with by adding exercise, adding raw foods really keeping the fat content low. Um, I would suggest not restricting portion sizes unless you have uh, um, particular uh, eating issues and in which case you want to be guided by your caregiver.
0: All right. And uh, a follow-up to that from Audrey. She wants to know, is it best to slowly transition to a plant-based diet or push that stack to the middle of the table and just go all in?
1: Go all in. Um, I I, I would go all in. Um, And the reason for that, Is if you go really slowly, you're reigniting your desire for whatever the contraband is that (laughs) that made you sick in the first place. But we have a certain way that we do this in the Barnard Medical Center and in our research studies. And I, I have never seen anyone unable to do this. You take seven days, and during those first seven days, don't take anything out of your diet. You can still eat meat, eggs, cheese, whatever you're eating. But Your job during these seven days is to identify low-fat vegan foods that you like, and you just make a list. Um, Write down breakfasts and lunches and dinners that appeal to you. So oatmeal with cinnamon and raisins, um, bean chili instead of meat chili. You've got seven days to come up with a list of plant-based foods that appeal to you. And at the end of seven days, you'll have a really good list. Okay, so now step two is to take 21 days and do it all vegan all the time for those three weeks and without um, any animal products at all. But that's really easy because it's only three weeks. And secondly, you already have a list of foods that you like. In fact, they're on your shelf and in your fridge right now. And at the end of those 21 days, two things will have occurred. Number one, you will be physically healthier. You'll lose weight, your blood sugar is coming down and so forth. But the other thing is that your attitudes about foods are changing. You discover you don't really miss the meat or the cheese or the eggs. If you had done it just gradually and you had some cheese yesterday, you know, you're going to want it today. So any move that you make is good. And if you're slowly declining, that's all great. You know, you're doing wonderfully. But try my two-step method, seven days to check out the possibilities, three weeks as a test drive, and it will change your life.
0: All right. We're going to sneak two more questions in here quickly. Uh, This next one is a little bit yucky, but you know what? It's also that time of year, so it's fitting. This one is from Julie, who's watching us on YouTube. She wants to know, are there any foods that would cut down on the amount of mucus that we produce? It is, in fact, that time of year where my sinuses get a little bit full.
1: Oh, yeah. Dairy comes top for this. Um, And you'll see um, this manifests in all kinds of ways. And at every stage of life, um, little children, who have middle ear issues, Um, you know, that back when people would fly on planes and the plane is starting to go down and the pressure is building up in the ears. Um, Kids who have uh, a lot of inflammation uh, in that part of the respiratory tree, I'm talking about the inner ear, um, they cry and so forth. And when those kids are, you remove dairy, some of those kids are going to do better. Then a little bit later, uh, you have asthma, you have other respiratory issues. Get away from dairy products. It seems my my sense of this is not that a person necessarily is allergic to dairy, but it's making other sensitivities um, more pronounced. And I do think we need more research on here, but you don't need to to wait for another randomized clinical trial to just try it for yourself. Um, in my experience, we see that avoiding dairy is the most help. And w- when I say dairy, I mean even non-fat dairy, because it's probably the protein in it, not the fat that is eliciting this sensitivity reaction.
0: So it sounds like it's more of a case, if, if you want to help in that arena, it's more of what you don't eat versus what you do. So get that dairy out. Is that correct? Uh, yes,
1: very much so. Yes.
0: All right. Final question comes to us from Gina. Again, uh, man, this is a question that would only be asked in the fall. I know it's pie, and I can probably guess what the answer is. But she says, since it is the season, I will ask anyway, is there such a thing as a healthy pumpkin pie?
1: <laughs> of course there <laughs> is. Um, sure. Um, when you, now, I am not a chef. I'm a doctor. Um, but the last time I checked, when people make pie, they start out with some pretty healthy things. Like they start out with pumpkin um and then they put them in there but somewhere in the recipe there is one truckload of sugar and another truckload of some kind of shortening or grease and but you will find um, on our website at pcrm.org you'll find recipes for healthy pies um, that have more healthful sweeteners and more healthful sort of bulk agents so that you don't have to um, make your coronary arteries slam closed just to have
0: all right great answer dr barnard thank you so very much for your time today my friend well thanks to you chuck and thanks to all of our listeners If you ever have a question for Dr. Barnard that you would like addressed on the show, the best way to make that happen is to join us for the exam room live every Monday through Friday over on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. Noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, Monday through Friday. That is your chance to help us fill up that doctor's mailbag, and then we will do our best to get you an answer. It is hands down the healthiest half hour anywhere online today. And I said at the top of the show that we are doubling down on our nutrition education here today, really raising our IQs. And so we are going to do a bonus doctor's mailbag segment now with Dr. Venita Rahman and dietitian extraordinaire, the fiber queen, Lee Crosby. Got some more great questions that were fed to us on the show. And now it's time to prescribe some answers for them as well going to be talking about the connection between osteoporosis and diet. What is that connection? What are the foods that we should be avoiding? What are the foods that we should be turning to? Well, Dr. Rahman's going to weigh in on that. And then dietitian Lee Crosby, the fiber queen, going to be talking about FODMAPs, low FODMAP diets when it comes to IBS. What is a FODMAP diet, first of all? Well, we're going to find that out. And then we're going to find out, is it true that they can help? with IBS. And then here's a really interesting one that we all can benefit from. Someone wrote in, an exam room viewer wrote in, wanted to know if it was true that soaking nuts overnight can help you absorb the nutrients. Well, let's find out right now. Lee, I want to start with you because we've been talking about fruit and flavanol. Well, how about fruit and diabetes? We have a question here. Gets asked a lot, but it's always worth answering. This is a question from Kirti. She wants to know, does eating fruit such as mango cause diabetes?
2: I am so happy to answer this question. I feel like the fruit people, I don't know if there's like a fruit board, but they should come see me because I'm a huge fan of fruit and that includes for diabetes. And I know for a lot of people, that's a bit jarring to hear because you think, oh, well, fruit has sugar in it. And we know that high blood sugar is a problem with diabetes. So you shouldn't have fruit, right? And the answer is no, not right. The sugar in fruit, again, you're not just knocking it back like a soda. What you're having it with, it's packaged with all kinds of great stuff, right? You're getting fiber, you're getting minerals, you're getting potassium and vitamin C and all these protective phytochemicals like flavanols that we talked about antioxidants, they're anti-inflammatory. They all promote health and multiple studies have shown either no effect or more often a beneficial effect on blood sugar levels and overall health. And just really quick, there was a study done of more than half a million people in China. And what they found is that people who ate fresh fruit every day, so the best snack, also good dessert, uh, were 12% likely, less likely to get type two diabetes in the first place. And then, but wait, if people already had diabetes and you think, oh, well, they'd be the ones who'd be at risk, they were actually slightly less likely to die or get complications of diabetes, like eye problems or diabetic um, you know, retinopathy, nephropathy, during the study, if they were eating more fruits. So please, when it comes to diabetes, whether you wanna reduce your risk or have better outcomes, please eat lots and lots of those colorful fruits.
0: Dr. Rahman, sticking with diabetes here, this is a question that comes to us from e-dog. He wants to know regarding type two diabetes, what is the mechanism that causes the body to produce excess insulin?
3: Yeah. So let's, for those people who may not know, when we talk about diabetes, we're talking about a condition where our blood sugar is high and there are two basic types of diabetes, type one, that's, and then type two. In type one, uh, our insulin stop. our our pancreas stop producing insulin. We think it's an autoimmune condition where there's inflammation in the pancreas, they produce less and less insulin, and then eventually the person who has this condition will need lifelong insulin. And that accounts for about 10% of diabetes. It's usually seen in young children. Type 2 diabetes accounts for 90% of diabetes that we see. It's usually a disease that occurs in middle age, but now we're seeing it at younger and younger ages, even in children. And in type 2 diabetes, the pancreas are still capable of producing insulin, but our body becomes resistant to it. So even though we have insulin, it just isn't as effective anymore. And the reason we become resistant to it is because uh, of our diet. When our diet is high in fat, our cells don't take the insulin as in as easily and insulin isn't able to do its job. And so the pancreas in response will produce more and more insulin to overcome that. And uh, with time, that response just kind of fails and we end up with high blood sugars. So it's really our high fat diet that seems to play a key role in insulin resistance, which causes the pancreas to compensate by making more insulin.
0: All right. Lee, coming to you for a Flavanol follow-up. This one comes to us from Richard at 1209. Wants to know, what is the best cocoa for Flavanols? I have raw cacao nibs every day.
2: I think raw cacao nibs. the, The short answer is I don't have a specific in terms of this particular kind. Raw cacao nibs should be a good source. Um, particularly because you're right, since they haven't been roasted, you would expect that there wouldn't be any degradation of those flavanol uh, compounds. They do actually make there are some cocos on the market that are sort of marketed as like half cocoa powder, half high, you know, uh, flavanol and other sort of, you know, cocoa goodness <laughs> for the lack of a scientific term. But first, they're higher in flavonoids and that whole sort of compound, family of compounds, of which flavonols are just one. So they do have, those are on the market, so you can look those up. But as a general rule, I think a raw cacao nib would be a fine way to get it. You'd want to just be a little careful with those because they can be higher in fat. So just, you know, monitor the amounts that you're using. But man, if you were to have a berry smoothie and chuck some raw cacao nibs in there and maybe a little bit of green tea or matcha, you'd be covered. Sleeping all, all the way. <laughs> I, I think uh, as, as long as
0: we're talking about cocoa, cacao, and chocolate, we should really kind of draw a distinction here between raw cacao nibs and a white chocolate Hershey's bar because they are not even remotely in the same ballpark.
2: No, you got it. First off, again, we're talking pigments. If you want to get the flavanols, it has to be, you got to have some color in there. So if, if you have this anemic white chocolate bar, there's really what that is, is you can think of it as a white sort of cocoa butter bar. So if you want to have a butter bar, cocoa butter, but still that's just sugar and the fat pulled out of the cocoa, that's what you're going to get with a white chocolate bar. And any of the bar chocolates, frankly, um, what they do is they mix cocoa with extra fat, typically saturated fat. That's what makes it a bar, you know, knock on it. You can hit that puppy on the table. That's what makes it have that hard, you know, feel. So unless you want to have that saturated fat also kind of spackled in your arteries, which I personally don't, uh, better to stick to cocoa powder or the very, or you could do a cocoa nib where it's in the whole form the way you get it. So both of those are better options by far than a chocolate bar, even a dark chocolate bar, which while yes, it's certainly better health-wise than a milk chocolate bar, it's still not a great option overall. All
0: right, Dr. Ramon, coming to you. Question from Vmore at 1217 says, been vegan for three and a half months. My glucose level is now normal, but my blood pressure is still a little
3: elevated. Do you have any advice? Yeah, well, first of all, congratulations uh for staying vegan for three and a half months. And and clearly, it's made an, a difference in your blood glucose levels, which is wonderful. As far as blood pressure, so we know plant-based foods can help lower our blood pressure, but um, we also need to understand which plant-based foods. When we're talking about blood pressure, we have to be really mindful of the amount of sodium in our diet, not salt per se, but the sodium, salt is just one component of sodium. And over 75% of the sodium in our diet comes from processed food or restaurant food. And the more sodium we consume, the higher our blood pressure goes. So if you are trying to reduce your blood pressure, I would recommend really reading those nutrition labels and seeing how much sodium is in each serving you want to limit your daily sodium intake to 1500 milligrams a day. And a rule of thumb that I love for this is if the serving size has more sodium than calories, then put it back. You want to get food that has less sodium than calories in it. And that really helps a lot. So watching the sodium is going to be key. Also getting plenty of potassium in the form of fruits, vegetables, legumes and grains that are just packed with it, but especially fruits that we've been talking about today because potassium helps reduce it.
0: Dr. Roman, I want to stick with you. We have a great question here from Dinah at 1220. She uh, wants to know, can having too much overt fats in the diet, such as avocado and tofu nuts and seeds, cause insulin resistance even among someone who's eating a whole food plant-based diet? So healthy fats, can you still have too much of it?
3: Yeah, I, I think so, definitely. Uh, so within, we know that animal foods are just naturally high in fat. And most plant-based foods like fruits, nuts, uh, uh, fruits, vegetables, legumes, grains are pretty low in fat. But certain plant-based foods like avocados, nuts, seeds, they're about 70% fat. So they're pretty high. So if you have prediabetes or diabetes or you're trying to lower your body weight, I do recommend uh, limiting the amounts of these high-fat foods. Uh, and now, tofu is interesting. It's about 50% fat, so it's a lot lower. I don't think that causes as much problem, usually because it's a little bit hard to overeat tofu. It's so hearty, whereas things like nuts, seeds, avocados, it's much easier to overconsume them.
0: All right. Lee, coming back to you for this one. First of all, Marco uh, wants to say thank you for the vegan on a budget episode that we did uh, last year or the year before. He said that he got a lot of enjoyment out of that. Oh, um, that's
2: th- one of my favorite topics. You're welcome, Marco.
0: <laughs> I know. When we went downstairs to the grocery store and loaded oh, up our a, that was a grocery yeah. cart, yep. uh, feed a whole, you know, two people for an entire week for like 40, bucks, for like 40 yeah. bucks. Yeah, it yeah. was insane. Uh, all right. Question from Stephanie wants to know about FODMAP diets. Uh, what is your opinion on low FODMAP diets for IBS. She writes that my husband is on it, but that also eliminates many veggies that are nutritious as well, such as garlic and
2: onions. Excellent question. So low FODMAP diets are a a proven treatment strategy when it comes to reducing IBS symptoms. However, there are a couple of things. One, they are not meant for long term. So FODMAP diets you eliminate and then you reintroduce in increasing amounts and by different groups of FODMAPs to see which ones the person is or is not sensitive to some people will be sensitive to one type of FODMAP some to multiples so at the beginning of the diet you're going to wipe out you're right a lot of healthy foods are going to go to the wayside but it's you're not supposed to stay there that's not a place where you live where you hang out you then and preferably this is actually where it makes sense to work with a registered dietitian because they can take you all the way through this process because what happens to a lot of people they go it on their own they wipe out all these high FODMAP foods which are actually really good for you I hate to say this but those high FODMAP is also a a way to say high prebiotic fiber, because those prebiotic fibers that feed the good bugs are oftentimes FODMAPs. So that what they'll do is they'll just get stuck, they'll feel better doing low FODMAP, and they'll never start challenging to see which of those groups of FODMAPs they can tolerate and how much. And so they actually just get stuck eating this sort of nutritionally depleted diet. So if you're in that category, Please, please go find a registered dietitian, preferably one who has a specialty in plant-based nutrition to help you get as many as much and as many different kinds of those FODMAPs back in your diet as you can tolerate because you're right. I mean, we know things like garlic and onions and apples, they're high in FODMAPs, but they're also incredibly good for you. So please go, go, go find a dietitian and make sure that you can work those back in as much as you can.
0: Dr. Rahman, coming to you, this is a question from Gail. She wants to know, does the plaque that is already in your arteries disappear with a whole food plant-based SOS diet?
3: Yeah, so a really important question. We we believe it can diminish. So uh, this is based on research that Dr. Dean Ornish and, Doctors Cal- uh, and Dr. Caldwell Esselstein did. And what they saw in their research studies is that people who followed a low-fat, whole food plant-based diet when they had an angiogram before and after, there was regression of the plaques. So we believe it can, uh, but it's hard to know uh, to what extent and if it'll be the same for everybody. But we know f- based on their research, the best thing we can do to minimize our risk of heart disease or cardiovascular disease is to eat a whole food plant-based diet.
0: All right. We have time for a few more questions. So go ahead and keep on posting yours in the comments section. Now we're going to try to sneak as many in as we possibly can. Uh, Dr. Rahman, I want to stick with you here. Question from Cassidy wants to know, should I avoid oil and processed foods on a whole food plant-based diet or are they okay to eat? That question came in at 1224
3: this afternoon. Yeah, really important question there. You're asking, it is best to avoid oil uh, you know, for so long, oils have been commonly used in cooking and especially olive oil has been touted as a health food. Well, they really aren't healthy for us. Oil is nothing but a 100% fat. It doesn't provide any essential nutrients for us that we can't get in better ways from more healthier foods, uh, especially if you're trying to lower your blood sugar or reduce your body weight. It's really important to avoid oil. And for everyone, uh, avoiding oil um is important because we know oil, including olive oil, impairs our vascular function. So uh, I would recommend that. And then same thing with processed foods. You know, processed food for those uh, who are wondering is loosely defined as food that's been processed from its original form by the food industry and then sold to us, whether it's frozen, canned, or in a jar. And the problem with processed food is it tends to be, not always, but it usually tends to be high in fat, high in sodium, high in calories. So uh, it's best to avoid it if you can, but it also depends on the food. And that's where it's really important to read the ingredients, look at that nutrition label, look at how much fat there is, look at how much sodium there is, look at the caloric density before making that decision.
0: Lee, next question comes to us from Jana. She wants to know, do you recommend soaking nuts overnight before eating them to activate them for better absorption? What do you think, Lee?
2: Okay. So I'm guessing that the, the what we're actually asking here is, so nuts contain something called phytates. And they are sort of, one of the ways that the nut kind of is sort of quiet and quiescent in its little, cute little shell there until it's time to germinate. And what's the signal that it's time to germinate is water. And what that does in terms of absorption is it actually starts to make the minerals in that seed, which are getting ready to go off and do their little seed germinating job. In this case, the nut is the seed. Um, it makes them more bioavailable, a little bit more absorbable. Now, interestingly, phytates, so you would think, okay, we're just going to soak soak the nuts. That's going to be great. And you can do that. And it does have the advantage of making the minerals in the nuts a little more absorbable, things like iron and magnesium. Um, but there actually are some health benefits to phytates as well. So they're, they're linked with some, you know, lower risks of chronic diseases. So My answer is, if you have time and the desire, go ahead and do that. If you're going to leave them out for more than a couple of hours, I would go ahead and soak them in the fridge just for food safety purposes. Um, And again, soaking really is only particularly helpful um, with raw nuts, not so much as I understand it with ones that are already roasted. Um, So if you want to soak them, great. They're certainly easier to work with in a blender. If you want to make a dressing or something that's creamy and you don't have a high power blender, just soak those cashews, for example, first. Um, But if you want to eat them raw, that's fine, too.
0: All right. And sticking with you, here is your final question for the day. It all goes back to the whole chocolate and cacao thing. This one is from Mona. She says, I've replaced
2: cacao with carob. Was that a good decision, Lee? I think I think it's a fine decision. Um, there are a couple of, so like every like so many things in life, there are good things and bad things even about cocoa. So cocoa and chocolate does contain some stimulants. It's part of the reason that it feels so good to eat it. <laughs> it contains some caffeine. It also contains theobromine, which is sort of in that same family, not quite as strong of a stimulant. Um, and, you know, th- there are lots of health benefits of chocolate, the sort of stimulant side of things, probably less so. So you're getting away from that with a carob and you're still getting lots of fiber and I am not as familiar in terms of like the phytonutrient profile of carob, but given that it's basically a whole plant food, I'm guessing it's going to be pretty good. So do I think that's an issue? No. And if you want to get more of those flavanols, just have some berries, have some grapes, enjoy an apple with lunch or with breakfast if you're out on the West Coast. Um, but yeah, I think that's a fine swap to make.
0: And Dr. Rahman, the final, final question of the day comes to you, this one from Suzanne. She is asking, can you please talk about the way that diet and osteoporosis are connected?
3: Yeah, so such an important topic. Osteoporosis is a disease of the bone where the bones lose their bone density. They become more brittle, more prone to fracturing. And for years, women were told, to make sure they consume adequate dairy products so that they can deposit calcium in their bones and strengthen their bones. Well, guess what? That, the opposite is actually true. Uh, in countries where dairy is consumed more, we see higher rates of osteoporosis and related fractures. So while dairy products may contain calcium, it's not benefiting our bones. And one of the best things we can do to protect our bones and strengthen them is to eat a whole food plant-based diet. And we can get plenty of calcium from green leafy vegetables, from beans and legumes, and from fortified milk, such as soy milk or almond milk, they'll often have calcium added to them. And tofu is a great source of calcium. So um, in terms of diet, a whole food plant-based diet is the best way to go. And then there are other things that are important, such as getting regular exercise, especially weight-bearing exercise, such as walking. People may not be aware that simple walking is a weight-bearing exercise. When we walk, our skeleton has to support our body weight and that strengthens our bones. So walking or strength training with Pilates or weightlifting, running, these are all great options.
0: All right. You guys, my exam roomies, you were asking some great questions today. So uh, Dr. Raman Lee Crosby, thank you both very much for your time and, and fielding them and prescribing some answers, really clearing up some nutrition confusion for us today. Thank you both uh, very much. And if we did not get to your question on the show today, have no fear. We will save it and we will do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. So go ahead, keep on posting that in the chat box or in the comment section or tweet them to us using the hashtag exam room live and don't forget you can also schedule a telemedicine appointment to visit with dr ramon or lee at the barnard medical center for that all you need to do is visit barnardmedical.org or pick up the phone and call 202-527-7500 telemedicine appointments are available now in more than a quarter of the country you can find a full list of states of where services are available at barnardmedical.org. and yes insurance is accepted So many great questions once again this week. I love doing these shows. As a matter of fact, I had a friend recently tell me that the diet myth shows where it's just a grab bag, a doctor's mailbag, as it were, of all kinds of different questions, These are their favorite shows, so I really enjoy interacting with you guys and getting the opportunity to make sure that the doctors get your questions so we can get a whole bunch of answers to a whole bunch of different topics all on one show. So again, if you would like to have your question answered on the show, the best way to do that is to join us for The Exam Room Live Monday through Friday over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. We start at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific every day. Join us there. Or if you're active on Twitter, hit us up over at Chuck Carroll, wlc that's me, and at PCRM. Send us your questions there using the hashtag examroomlive. And if you liked the show today, you liked what you heard, and you want to share it with the world and make the world a little bit more of a healthy place, go ahead and subscribe to the exam room podcast, the very one that you're listening to right now, if you haven't already done so subscribe to the exam room podcast by the physician's committee on Apple podcast or Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows, go ahead, hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating. Now here's the cool thing. I say this every time and I mean it every time as well. The more five-star ratings we receive, the more subscriptions we get, the more people can find this information. And it's so important, especially right now, where health is paramount in the midst of a pandemic, that we do everything in our power to take the best care of ourselves as possible. So do us a favor, subscribe to the show, leave that five-star rating, and help us make the world a healthier place. The Let's Beat Breast Cancer Campaign 2020 edition rolls on throughout the month of October. And coming up on the next episode of The Exam Room, renowned breast cancer surgeon Dr. Christy Funk will be back to put a bow on our special series this month. She and I are going to be talking about breast cancer in the COVID era because there has been a massive shift in treatment during the pandemic. So what is it that Dr. Funk has been noticing? through her eyes as a doctor. She and I are also going to be keying in on the sneaky risk factors when it comes to breast cancer. What are those sneaky risk factors that can elevate your risk of becoming one of the 8 women who will be diagnosed with breast cancer during their lifetime? And perhaps more importantly, what are the changes that you can make right now to your diet and your lifestyle that can help bring that risk right back down so that's coming up on the next episode of the exam room and right now though i encourage you to please head over to letsbeatbreastcancer.org and join us join us in our fight against breast cancer and pledge to follow the four steps that we have created that can help lower your risk of breast cancer join with us in this fight lower your risk and when you do make that promise take that pledge, you will be entered to win one of the great grand prize packs that we have put together specifically designed to help you along your new healthy journey. And I also want to say a huge thank you to our friends over at Switch for Good for not only sharing what the science says about dairy and your health, but also for their support of the Let's Beat Breast Cancer Campaign this year as well. And speaking of Switch for Good, I was actually on their podcast recently, had an opportunity to sit down with Olympic cyclist Dotsie Bausch and wonderful actor Alexandra Paul. Such a great episode where we really dove in to food addiction and what it's like in the mind of a food addict. But in this doubling down type of episode that we're doing today... Well, I can tell you that we're doubling down on food psychology as well, because both Dotsie and Alexandra will be joining me very shortly on the exam room podcast right here. It's going to be an amazing show. We're going to be talking about anorexia and bulimia. And for me, morbid obesity, different conditions on paper, very different. And yet, during our conversation, what you will hear is that we had so much in common throughout our battles as well. Food psychology is fascinating, and we are going to go inside the food-disordered mind. So look out for that very soon on the Exam Room Podcast. But for today, that is all the time that we have, my friend. I want to say thank you one more time to Drs. Neil Barnard and Vanita Ramon for joining us, as well as the fiber queen, Dietitian Lee Crosby. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.